This episode of Access Utah was first broadcast in July. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. For those who go in search of the isolation, silence, and adventure of wild places, it is, perhaps ironically, to the man-made shelters that they need to head. The outposts, bothies, bivouacs, cabins, and huts. In his new book, Outpost, A Journey to the Wild Ends of the Earth, Dan Richards says that in part, uh, part of their allure is their simplicity, enough architecture to shelter them from uh, weather, not so much as to distract from the immediate environment around. And uh, following a route from the Cairngorms of Scotland to the Firewatch lookouts of Washington State, from Iceland's Houses of Joy to the Utah Desert, frozen ghost towns in Svalbard to shrines in Japan, Roald Dahl's Metroland Riding Hut to a lighthouse in the North Atlantic, Dan Richards explores landscapes which have inspired writers, artists, and musicians, and asks, why are we drawn to wilderness? What can we do to protect them? And what does the future hold for outposts on the edge? Dan Richards is co-author of Holloway and author of the Beechwood Airship Interviews and uh, Climbing Days. He's written for The Guardian, Harper's Bazaar, Caught by the River, Quietus, Earnest Journal, and Lodestar's Anthology. He's RLF fellow at Bristol University. You can find him on Twitter at Dan underscore Zepp. Dan Richards, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Hello, Tom. Uh, pleasure to be here. Uh, so we've reached you, I believe, in England somewhere? That's right. I'm in Bath, in yeah. the southwest. In, in Bath in the southwest. So, well, great. Wonderful uh, to, to have you with us. Uh, we'll definitely get to Utah. I had forgotten that the Mars station was, was here in Utah. You, yeah. You definitely go it's out there and, away. and it's in the way. It's near Hanksville. Understand, That's which right. Is it was funny. When I was in Utah, people kept telling me that, you know, I, they would say, oh, there's a Mars base. And I go, yes, there definitely is. And they go, right, whereabouts is that? And I go, Hanksville. <laughs> and there'd be a very long pause. And then they go, yeah, I'm not sure that's really a place. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. yeah, I got well, there in the end. Well, and Hanksville isn't, isn't near very much else. Um, no, uh, I discovered this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll get into that. I want to start where you start here. Um, I'll read your first sentence. I grew up fascinated, you say, by polar bear pelvis that my in my father's study, and you have a picture of it here. Um, yeah. Tell me about this. Um, well, in the years before I was born, my father was a very keen climber, and he was an explorer, um, and he was a geologist. And so um, just before I was born, in the months before, he was away on Svalbard, and Svalbard is a Norwegian archipelago, um, it's the furthest land north uh, before the North Pole. Um, and he was up there studying geology. And during one of his, um, one of his uh, sort of um, surveys, he discovered this most amazing polar bear pelvis, very old, um, on a beach at the snout of a glacier. And um, he brought it home. No one's quite sure how he got it home, because even in 1982, I think people were pretty hot on um, suggesting at, uh, you know, uh, customs that maybe this polar bear pelvis uh, shouldn't be in your bag. But uh, I don't know how he did it. During the writing of my previous book I, about climbing, I discovered that if uh, climbers wanted to bring anything home, which perhaps, you know, was um, suspicious, they would put it in the bag that had the most um, smelly and odorous kit <laughs> 
so that the customs people would be so appalled by the smell when they opened the bag because <laughs> it just had all these unwashed clothes in that they would quickly close the bag and say, I'm sure that's fine because they didn't want to be damaged by the smell. You know, this kind of mm-hmm. Chernobyl-style cloud <laughs> coming out of the bag. So maybe he did something similar with the pelvis, but I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, so you have the the uh, polar bear pelvis. Um, also, you said kind of uh, joined in mythology your father, the pelvis, and a shed. This this was Hotel yeah. California. Tell me about Hotel California. Well, Hotel California is this most amazing. Um, it's it's really. I mean, I say it's amazing, but actually, it's incredibly normal. It's just a garden shed. The amazing thing about it is that it was there um, near Neolisand at uh, seventy eight degrees north. You know, so. Many of your listeners will probably have a, a shed or a, or a caboose or something in their garden where they keep their toolkit or something like this. But the fact that this very humble dwelling, it was probably the most northerly shed on earth, you know, and I think it's still there. The locals call it Janzabu, um, which is quite close to Xanadu. Um, but my father's team um, referred to it as Hotel California. Um, I guess they could check out any time they liked, but, you know, if there's a bear outside, perhaps they could never leave. I'm not quite sure, but it was definitely in polar bear country. Yeah. Um, so and you say that, uh, of course, a wooden building up that far north would uh, you'd be there forever. I guess with climate change, perhaps uh, would be less permanent these days. Yes. Um, I mean, recently I read that Svalbard is actually the place, one of the places that's that's warming fastest um, on Earth. Uh, the warming has increased recently by four times. So it's, um, or that might be that it's four times the average warming, which is quite terrifying. Um, and one of the problems with this is that things that have been permafrosted and were assumed to carry on being incredibly um, permafrosted and frozen are beginning to thaw. So wood and wooden buildings in that area, um, it's never before been a problem that they would ever rot because the moisture, um, you know, you need uh, some degree of warmth for for rot to happen. Um, But, um, you know, it happened recently that they built this um, seed vault, you know, to keep all the seeds um, or um, examples of all the seeds on Earth Um, in a climate-controlled environment if there was a climate catastrophe. And then I think it was last year or the year before, they had to retrofit a load of drainage to this building, which is in a a mine in uh, Longyearbyen. So this is the capital of Svalbard. And they had to do all this retrofitting and fix, uh, fit, well, cooling within it and, and pumps because the permafrost is going at such a rate, it's boggling. And even the people who built these things... um, you know, it's terrifying to them, and they're the people who know, you know. So one of the reasons that I was so keen to try and get back and see where my father had found the pelvis, I wanted to see if this hut still existed, because, you know, it's very much on the edge in every sense. There's some irony there, isn't it? These seeds are supposed to, you know, preserve us. and uh, Yeah. Yeah, global warming think, is, know, is threatening those, those seeds. Yeah. Um, so you say there is, in your imagination growing up, there there's an Arctic triptych that uh, fired your imagination, your father, the pelvis, and the shed. Uh, yeah. What, what kinds of things went on in your imagination? 
Well, I mean, the actual artifact of the pelvis was such an... In, I mean, and I still have it. It's just upstairs here because I'm speaking in, in my kitchen, but the, the pelvis is upstairs. And it's just such an extraordinary artifact. And to hold it, it's heavier than you might imagine. It's about a foot long. I think um, I've spoken to my friend, Dr. Nick Crumpton, who works at the Royal Society in London, and he said it looks like it came from a female two or three years old. Um, and it's just one of those things. It's like a prism. It's like a way into a landscape because to hold it, you know that this, this is so unusual. You know, it's such an odd thing. And it just really um, freed my mind to think about the Arctic. And when certainly you're a, when you're a kid, you know, and your mind is so um, plastic, it's like mercury, you know, and it goes off in all these directions. So suddenly you're in this great white silence, this dream of a white space that seems to go on forever. And I was imagining my father as a young man, and I was imagining polar bears. And here is this artifact, you know, from this place, from this bear. And it was so potent to me. I mean, I mean, listening to myself now, I can see that that potency and excitement hasn't really gone. Um, and so as a kind of, um, I suppose, talisman and, um, you know, uh, suggestion of adventure, it's just, it's unsurpassed in my kind of experience of things, you know? Uh, another influence here was uh, coming off your uh, previous book, Climbing Days, right? You, you had done some climbing and had stayed in a, I don't know what you would call it, in, in the Swiss Alps. A sort of a Swiss cabin, I suppose. Okay. They have... Um, Wherever there is high climbing, so I was climbing in Switzerland, um, various places, Scotland as well. But if you're um, climbing above the snow line, often you will hike up to a sort of station. And a lot of the places in the book were kind of um, stopping points um, as part of Journeys On. But with climbing, you would get up perhaps above um, the zone where you would get altitude sickness. So to acclimatize, you'd be in somewhere and then um, that's near enough the peaks that perhaps you wish to climb or journeys you wish to make. And uh, as, as I was climbing for that book, um, I began to think about this idea that there are so many of these quite specialized, but very beautiful places on Earth that... Um, normal people, I suppose, civilians who don't climb or, you know, just people who go about their, their normal lives without um, pondering too much about, you know, what's, what's going on in the wilds. There are these places that are freely accessible um, and you can go there and just be amongst other kind of specialists or people with a particular kind of enthusiasm. And that was something that really excited me about the climbing book. And so when it came to think about the new book, that idea of um, these spaces and bothies and outposts that exist on the edge, um, it was one of the it was one of the kind of triggers for the book, I suppose. Uh, by the way, very brief side trip here. Uh, you have uh, some uh, famous. Uh relatives and that you're kind of following the footsteps of your great is it great great aunt great great yeah, yeah. great great aunt and uncle so um my great great aunt was a lady called dorothy pilly um and she was a formidable wonderful lady um she set up the first uh globally the first climbing club by women for women as opposed to a kind of slightly grudging auxiliary side of a man's climbing club, you know, because previous to when she was born, there were only climbing clubs, and it was presumed that you would understand, of course, they were only for men. Uh, when she was growing up, being this amazing climber, um, 
and finding her access to, you know, the let's say the Alpine Club of Great Britain or the Felon Rock Club um, barred by, uh, you know, want of her sex um, and the fact that she would be wanting in the in the in the mountains and be seen as some sort of you know terrible liability, despite the fact that she was, you know, she's the first lady to climb, for example, Mount Baker um, in Washington State. Um, and so she set up this climbing club called the Pinnacle Club, which still exists and has its original hut in Wales um, in the UK. Um, and she was married to a man called I.A. Richards, uh, who taught at Cambridge University over here and also at Harvard. He was great friends with T.S. Eliot, um, and he was developing a world language called um, Basic English. So he was off in China um, quite a lot from the 1920s through to the 70s. And they both traveled together and climbed together all around the world and were the most amazingly sort of adept and brilliant couple, not just in their marriage, but physically they made a wonderful team. And so that climbing book that I wrote was really an attempt to go in their footsteps and write about their relatively little-known uh, ventures together um, in the US and in Canada, Glacier National Park, all of that. So um, that was the that was my previous book. Yes. By the way, I Richards, uh, I understand uh, his books on literary criticism are, are key texts. D- did you study those when you were growing up? I did. Um, I was the first in the family to kind of have a crack at them. Uh, the family knew that he was an incredibly um, cerebral, clever man, um, but I think they were slightly boggled by what he had done. But yes, um, his literary criticism is still, you know, um, whether or not people know his name, it's still a hugely influential thing that happened. And I should say, um, essentially, if any of your listeners have ever been asked to comment on a piece of text and say the name of the author has been taken off and the dates and really any clues as to where this text might come from other than the words on the page themselves that was really i suppose i iar um was one of the people who really um brought that into education and it's an incredibly exciting and anarchistic thing to do if you think about it if he was doing that at cambridge university in the 20s and 30s and you have the university system that's fundamentally based on reputation and if you're asked to comment on a sonnet by shakespeare it's a fairly decent bet that it's going to be quite a decent you know sonnet but if you take shakespeare's name off suddenly people are who should know better, are foundering, you know, and saying a load of things that they can't back up. And so for Ivor to kind of put this in the school system and the higher education system, I just think it was the most wonderfully exciting and anarchistic and brave thing for him to do. So he was quite, you know, he was funny and he was um, quite daring, both in his academic life and his climbing. So he was a great person to try and befriend at several decades um, after he'd gone, you know, to climb in his footsteps. So in, in climbing, you're following footsteps of your uh, great aunt and, and uncle. Uh, in this book, in part at least, you're you're retracing some of the steps of your your father. This is something profound, I think, that we all do in various ways. Um, try yeah. try to retrace the steps of the people who are influential in our lives. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and you know, my father is. Uh, he's he's a wonderful man. He's he's you know like like everybody's father. He's difficult, you know. And uh, there's the writer over here, Alan Bennett, who once said, "Every family has a secret, and the secret is they're not like other families." You know, mm-hmm. every family is eccentric. Every family has um, you know its own special stuff going on. And um, in climbing days, I climbed with my father. 
Um, and in this book, I'm going in his uh, in his footsteps, I suppose. I tried to get up to Neolisand, um, and I and I went to Svalbard. And I think this idea of engagement with one's past and with one's family and with the stories that are passed down is is a wonderful thing to do anyway. But it's certainly a good jumping off point for a book and an adventure, which is something that I really took on here. I want to read uh, just a short passage uh, from early in the book. Um, one of the things I enjoyed the most in the book is is the uh, the cultures that you encounter, sort of the culture shock, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. And it helps me to get to know those, those cultures a little bit. Um, so you're, for, for the previous book, uh, you and your father apparently are, are doing some climbing, and you stay in one of these, these houses. And you're talking previously about the word bivouac and how, how that means different things in different cultures. Uh, yeah. So you say, so whilst my father and I might optimistically refer to the night we spent on the side of Dent Blanche as bivouacking, the Swiss would say we just sat down. Indeed, I discovered firsthand they have no special name or term for this beyond stop due to fatigue and incompetence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think harsh but fair, absolutely. Yeah. Um, as part of that book, I met um, a man called André Georges, um, who's a Swiss mountain guide, and he is the great-nephew of um, Dorothea and Ivers' um, mountain guide. Um, and he is about eight foot tall, I would say. He has climbed every single mountain on Earth. I think there are 14 over 8,000 meters. Um, he is the most, you know, he's a very quiet giant of a man. And... Um, to talk to him about mountaineering, it's very much like talking to, you know, um, it's like talking to somebody who's um, a professional racing driver about the fact that you own a golf cart, you know? Mm-hmm. It would be like talking to Tom Brady that, about the fact that, you know, yeah, you play a little football as well, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just utterly different and he has done the most amazing things and so when my father and i got stuck on the side well we we did decide to stop on the side of a Dent blanche which is quite a big mountain in the swiss pennine alps and we had a grandstand view of the matterhorn and we just roped ourselves onto this little ledge and sat out the night because the the darkness had fallen faster than we expected my father discovered that he was a lot older and less fit perhaps than he remembered um and so we just stopped and it was an adventure and it was really really cold and it was fairly horrible at the time but it was a a great adventure to have had but then to talk to andre georges about this he just looks at you with his big eyes and you're feeling fundamentally uh you know wanting and judged and he just sort of like laughs and goes well you know you didn't know what you were doing (laughs) and then that's the end of that and you think well i'll take that one on the chin yeah (laughs) and uh, there's quite a lot in uh, outpost and in climbing days like that where i put myself in a situation where i go into um, a landscape as you say and i have this culture shock and often the culture shock is that i really don't know what i'm doing and i actually don't know anything you can do all this book learning but then when you're actually in the midst of a landscape and a culture um and weather and climate you suddenly think you know the world is a big and savage place and i should just be quiet and listen to the experts you know Mm Uh, it does take spirit of adventure to to just go, right? And you do a lot of that in this this book. For example, we'll get into the chapter on Utah and the Mars base. But I was reading your uh, your plan: fly into Salt Lake, okay, logical. Take a train to Green River, and then I guess you were planning to hire a car from Green River to Hanksville. 
And as I was reading that, I was thinking, no, that's that's never going to work. Um, it, mm-hmm. it, it worked out in the end with, with some friends. We'll get into that. Uh, let's take a break. Um, when we come back, I want to talk about uh, the connection between these outposts, the, the, the sheds, the bivouacs, the, uh, these, these outposts, you call them, and creativity. And uh, many writers have, have discovered this, and you talk about uh, some of these. We'll get into the uh, Mars station in, uh, in Utah and uh, much else. Outpost, A Journey to the Wild Ends of the Earth is the book. Dan Richards has joined us from uh, Bath in England, and uh, we'll have more following this break. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Dan Richards, author most recently of Outpost, A Journey to the Wild Ends of the Earth. He's joined us from Bath in England, and we appreciate him taking the hour with us. Uh, he says, for those who go in search of the isolation, silence, and adventure of wild places, it's perhaps ironically to the man-made shelters that they need to head. Outposts, bothies, bivouacs, cabins, and huts. And uh, he goes in search of uh, many of these places uh, in in the book. By the way, we're on Twitter at UPR Access, and uh, you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com. Dan Richards is on Twitter at Dan underscore Zepp. Uh, so, Dan Richards, you uh, you point out uh, several examples of uh, creative people, writers mostly, who uh, have found inspiration in these cabins, huts, bothies, bivouacs. Sometimes not out way out there, but uh, maybe on their own property. But they they want to get out at least to that extent into nature, and it helps them to be creative. Yes, I think so. Um, to have this kind of clear space to work, a kind of Spartan space um, to concentrate the mind. But also, I think, to give the example of Roald Dahl, um, he had a writing hut uh, shed in his garden that was inspired by the example of Dylan Thomas, who had um, a shed um, at his boathouse in Larn in South Wales. And I think they're practical things as well as just being sort of places for the for this imag- imaginative space because you know you can work there if you have children the children are in the house and you're at the bottom of the garden it's just enough space to kind of get on with things a little world apart and um actually Roald Dahl had a whole um sort of um process even before he began writing where he would you know go in and spend about 20 minutes going through these rituals which were sort of really exciting and fun to learn about where he would you know he'd go in and he'd sit in his chair and he'd put his feet in this um sort of sleeping bag to keep warm and then he'd put um uh, cardboard roll over the arms of his chair in front, and in fact, the um, the animated film of Fantastic Mr. Fox that Wes Anderson um, did a few years ago had uh, Mr. Fox sitting in a very uh, exact replica of Roald Dahl's chair, and then Roald Dahl would put this board over his legs, and uh, so he'd pretty much trap himself. This big BFG man would um, trap himself in the chair, and then he'd have this um, pad of very particular paper that he would always write on, which was yellow paper used um, by telephonists 
to kind of um, keep notes on that he discovered in the U.S. And then he would laboriously sharpen six pencils, first in an electric pencil sharpener that, again, he'd had imported from the U.S. And he'd sharpen these special pencils that also he had imported from the U.S. because everything had to be very particular. And he'd sharpen them in the electric pencil sharpener and then with a knife. And he'd sharpen them so much that they had ends like needles and so would immediately snap as soon as they touched the page. And then he would pour himself a coffee and then he would make sure he was warm and then he would have a cigarette. And then he writes that having exhausted all the possibilities of, um, you know, wasting his time and, uh, you know, he then had no option but to write. And he would write until all of those pencils were blunt and then he would go for lunch. And John Steinbeck had a similar kind of ritual, but um, I think he sharpened about 24 pencils or something like that that would last him the day. So this idea of a space for ritual, an idea for um, space for inspiration, was something that I um, really enjoyed researching because it was wonderfully eccentric to go into these private little creative spaces, uh, which, as you say, they're not the ends of the world, but they are, you know, different and far enough away from a house to be, you know, worlds apart. Uh, one of the most famous uh, examples of what we're talking about is uh, Thoreau, right, at Walden Pond. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, who described himself as caged amongst birds, which I've always loved. That idea of, um, and you said this in the introduction as well, just enough architecture so there is some discernible dis uh, difference between being inside and outside, but not much more. Um, and that seems to be a theme of quite a lot of writers, you know, from Rilke to, um, you know, Neil Gaiman has his, his uh, shared and, you know, lots of people do still. Uh, George Bernard Shaw, I learned from your book, um, had a... Uh I guess you'd call it a shed, but it was on a turntable so he could turn it to the sun Yeah, all during the yeah, day? Yeah, kind of um, strange gazebo-style summer house. Um, and there's a wonderful picture, which I couldn't, I couldn't fit in the book, but of this, you know, very bearded, you know, uh, bearded in a way that only Victorian people can be, really. Um, he was carrying that on. Um, and he would turn his summer house to face the sun, and it's pretty much like someone turning a, a railroad engine or something on a turntable. He would have his big sort of like um, lever and be, be wheeling this thing around, which is, again, brilliantly eccentric. And um, I love a bit of eccentricity, so I, I was always delighted when I discovered these sort of things. So what's going on, do you think? This is obviously, there, there's a connection um, between removing yourself, at least to some extent, from the normal routine and creativity. Uh, what do you yeah. think it is that spurs creativity? Um, I think that it's just the fact that you go into this kind of altered state. I've always found creative process incredibly interesting. Um, the first book I ever wrote involved lots of interviews with creative people, um, including people like Judy Dench, the actress, um, about these how how they worked, these creative people, where they worked, why they worked. And often it's putting yourself in a situation that is um, slightly outside the normal every day. And um, just having that difference because creative things are so interesting you're as a creative person you take from nothing and produce something you know and this idea of where do ideas come from um often i think the answer is hard work and concentration and working through a kind of silence this idea of writer's block or something like that um 
I think Picasso once said, inspiration does exist, but it must find you working. You, so that idea. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Uh, you quote uh, Saint-Exupéry, um, and, uh, and you talk about the overview effect. I wonder if you could tell me about that. Sure. Um, it's something that's been um, observed in, for example, the people who came back from the moon, the Apollo astronauts. Um, having been so far away from the world, you know, only a handful of people have ever been um, to the moon, and to actually be able to stand on the surface of a different satellite and cover the whole of the Earth with your, you know, your thumb, for example, it does something to your head where you... Um, you begin to see things in a different way. Um, the spectator, as it said, sees more of the game. And there are stories of people coming back and just sitting in shopping malls, eating an ice cream for hours, you know, I assume several ice creams, for hours, just looking at human beings and, you know, thinking, isn't this amazing? Isn't this crazy? And everything that's kind of taken for granted about being alive on Earth assumes a new kind of power um, because you've been away. And in the same way that, you know, taking a holiday, a rest is as good as a change. All of these truisms, in a way. Um, and this overview effect, it means that when people come back, they're far more protective and far more, um, I suppose, outspoken about protecting the earth. Um, if you, I had a bit of this when I went to Svalbard, where you're actually watching a glacier melt, for example. You're watching sea ice melt, um, when I was up there, I was talking to guides and um, naturalists who were saying that one of the main reasons that polar bears die is that they swim out towards pack ice that's over the horizon, over the offing, where for generations, for millennia, it's hardwired into polar bears that you swim out to ice that you cannot see where the seals will be, and then you hunt the seals and you build up your supply of blubber and energy for the year to come. And now polar bears are swimming out to sea ice that doesn't exist, and they drown. Or they keep going for miles and miles and miles. And there was a story of uh, a mother and two cubs leaving the shore of Svalbard and turning up hundreds of miles away on this little island. Um, and she turned up with one cub. And they've swum all that way. They've swum for weeks, and one cub has obviously gone. And then they get to this barren island, and you think, well, what are you going to do now? Because... They've got nowhere to go then, and there are no seals there either. And so if you go to these places, somewhere like Svalbard, um, and you see firsthand how, for example, global warming, the effects of that, the Earth's warming, and the fact that there's less ice or different ice, or the, the climate and the weather have changed to such a degree that it's very much impacting now. It's happening now. It's not an idea that is in any way, um, uh, you know, going to happen in the future. We're not talking in a way that is, you know, up for debate that nothing is happening and it's all imagined. You know, it's, it's, you're not talking in any symbolic way. It's happening now. And you go to these places and you see it firsthand and it changes you. And when you uh, go into space and you see the Earth as this orb, as this ball in space, it changes you. And you think, there, there really isn't a plan B, is there? This is all we have. And you come back and you wish to make a difference. And there's a lot of that in the book. Um, because I think it's very easy to fool yourself 
in, in the fact that you live in this little bubble, your town or your state or your country, and you think, well, I'm all right. But then when you see the fact that everything is connected, these networks in nature, these networks of climate, the fact that small things that people do or countries do have this huge effect, um, I think it changes your thinking and hopefully changes your behavior. Um, and that's something I talk about quite a lot in the book. You write um, that it might be better for the Earth if we stopped exploring, lest a human litter, which now blights the top of Everest and the depths of the sea spread to every part of the world. But then you go on to to speak, hopefully, about the overview effect, that, that, that uh, this urge to explore maybe encourage that, and that might produce the overview effect in more people. Yeah, it's a strange one, um, in as much as I write... Um, this book could be considered a travel book in a way. You know, I go to these places and I bring back the reader some news and this is where I went. It's not quite this is what I did on my holidays, but it is certainly this is where I've been. And then you're in a bit of a bind as a writer because you don't want to turn around at the end of your book and say, I don't think you should go to your reader. You can't patronize people and say, I've done this, but you shouldn't. At the same time, I think there are ways of going and this thing of leaving no trace, um, trying not to uh, do the bad thing. You know, if you go to somewhere like Svalbard, maybe you ski or you take a dog team rather than buzzing around on snowmobiles. And I'm not saying that Arctic warming is caused by, uh, you know, snowmobiles alone, but they're not helping. And one of the, you know, side effects of traveling, for example, with a dog team is that you're going at a human or animal pace. You're close to the ground because you're on a sled and you're going along and you can experience the quiet of travel and you're doing it in a very old way. And all you hear is the, is the sort of jingle of your dog team. You hear the swish of the rails underneath you. And you're traveling through, it feels quite fast because you're low to the ground. And that is so much better than going on a snowmobile, which is so loud. It's so raucous in many ways. It's like, um, I, I describe it as like being on a quad bike or a, or a motorbike with a flat tire. You know, there's nothing beautiful about going on a snowmobile. It's a very juddersome experience. And also, you're making such a lot of noise. You're making such a lot of smells on that thing that any chance of seeing wildlife is hugely diminished when you consider that someone like a polar bear, something like a polar bear, is capable of lying beside a seal hole for a week, waiting for it to pop its head up so it can punch it in the face and uh, drag it off. And they are listening, and they can hear, and they can smell a seal under so many feet of ice. For you know, they, can, they, they know what's going on. And if you think you're going to rock up on a snowmobile and surprise a polar bear, you're dreaming. And as a result, when you do see a polar bear, the question has to be asked, well, what's actually going on here? You know, the polar bear has not moved, but it's heard you coming for about half an hour. So what's going on there? And the sad thing is that polar bears are so used to people pitching up on snowmobiles and the fact that they smell so strongly of petrol and aftershave and cigarettes and all of that stuff, um, that the polar bear is just playing this kind of like really odd sort of role of the polar bear that people see that and it feels confident enough that people aren't going to shoot it so it just kind of like is there but it's on high alert so 
why are people going if you're just basically sort of, you know, playing this odd game with polar bears where they know you're there, you know it's there, all of that stuff. The whole thing is so fake in a way and strange and uncanny. And that was something I was interested in as well. Are there other places that we can go? Does everybody have to see a polar bear? What about if you go and look at something else that's perhaps less popular? Um, you know, do your own thing rather than being on these tourist trails, rather than going on a cruise that causes so much, you know, you're pumping out so much noxious stuff from your cruise. Could you go closer to home? So these kind of alternatives um, I'm looking for. And at the end of the book, I didn't necessarily come up with a satisfying answer for myself, but I'm very honest about the fact that it's a real struggle. You know, I think everybody needs to do their best with this, but it is a real struggle to do as little harm while we're on this planet as possible, because there's so much harm being done. I think it's up to everyone to kind of do their best to mean to, to you know, to influence legislators, but also, you know, take responsibility for themselves. You be the best person you can be. You try and do least harm. And I think it falls to all of us to you know, have a go at that. Have just joined us. Uh, you're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is Dan Richards, author most recently of Outpost, A Journey to the Wild Ends of the Earth. Uh, let's take another break. When we come back, our last segment, we'll definitely uh, have Dan Richards take us to some places. We'll start with here in Utah, the uh, the Mars station near Hanksville, and uh, then we'll go to as many other places as we have uh, time for that are described in the book. More following this break. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Our guest is Dan Richards. His latest book is Outpost, A Journey to the Wild Ends of the Earth. And uh, Dan Richards joins us from Bath in uh, England. Um, so Dan Richards, I want to jump into uh, the chapter in Utah. Um, okay. in- interesting, and it gets us into reasons why uh, people are out there in, near Hanksville uh, preparing for, I guess, colonizing uh, Mars. I wonder if you'd tell me about a conversation you had with an Amazon executive on the plane over. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, uh, it's it's strange because when I'm writing and traveling for books, often I get into conversations with people. Um, it's it's something about something about my face and the fact that you know I'm uh, you know not from round there that people often open up and start talking to me about strange things. And I was on a flight down from uh, Seattle to L.A. And um, the lady in the seat next to me turned out to be an Amazon lawyer, a lawyer for the company. And um, we began talking about the fact they're building this um, HQ2 um, and why they were doing that. Um, And so moving a lot of their resources out of Seattle on the West Coast. And it turns out that one of the drivers for that was North Korea and their nuclear uh, missile capabilities. And so clearly... Amazon have been drawing some circles on a map, and they are thinking that in the future, should um, North Korea, you know, decide to um, have a crack at the U.S., they're likely to hit the West Coast. And um, as the lawyer said to me, you know, in a post uh, sort of nuclear apocalyptic world, people will need new stuff. And there was a long pause, and I went, right. Okay, so you're moving, and she went east coast, and yeah. I went right. She went, you know, because uh, you know people will need new things if there's a sort of nuclear holocaust. And we were on a flight, 
you know, that was going above, at that point, probably above Portland. I just looked out the window at a particularly red sunset, and I thought, blimey, well, what a thing to say. Which is, it, it was, and there I was as well, on my way, um, you know, quite a sort of meandering route, but I was going to Utah to talk to the Mars Society about this Mars Desert Research Station they had. And here I was with, on this flight with this Amazon exec, um, lawyer, rather, talking about the end of the world. So it was quite a, um, I don't know, a strange start to that journey. Then you read a headline in the Guardian uh, newspaper, right? Elon Musk. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's all for Mars. And uh, it seems like President Trump's all for Mars as well at the moment. Um, although what that means, I don't know. Um, and people were just talking about how, you know, come the end of the world, we'll need somewhere else to live. Uh, my my view is is very much that maybe we should start you know concentrate on putting off the end of the world and try not to nuke each other and try not to live in some you know we live in a climate crisis perhaps we should do something about that rather than you know starting the car as it were for a trip to Mars and a kind of um, you know denial of our responsibilities as, as as Earthlings this idea that you can kind of you know put a different hat on and say no I'm a Martian now. Uh, so actually, it's not my it's not my responsibility. Good luck with that, and then sort of buzz off somewhere. I think is utterly bizarre, and uh, you know, utterly bonkers. But this idea of going to Mars as a scientific endeavour is quite an interesting thing that people are talking about, and that was one of the reasons that uh, I went to Utah in the first place to talk to uh, the Mars Society about what they're doing down there in the desert. All, I've only ever seen pictures, the photographs, um, you know, people in spacesuits walking around the desert uh, out there and then going back into the building, which I guess represents the, uh, you know, the, the, the outposts there yeah. on Mars. Uh, is, is, they are, is their purpose, they're getting ready, uh, learning things for when we colonize Mars? Is that the purpose? I think so. I mean, it's not, it's not quite the cult uh, situation that some people might think. Um, I think a lot of it is sociological. You know, you, people, and some of them are um, scientists, and some of them are people with a strong interest in Mars. There's all sorts of people who go. Um, and the Mars Hab, as they call it, um, down there, um, is a, as close a simulation on Earth of Martian conditions as we have, and I should say desert conditions. Um, Curiosity, the rover that's up on Mars at the moment, is sending back lots of information about the place where it is, and it turns out um, that the Mars Society chose very well this particular location because it turns out that the, the red... Um, desert there tallies almost exactly with what's going on on Mars. I think that the time scales that it took to form the various deserts are different, but in terms of the makeup, they're very similar, apart from one fairly crucial difference, which is that um, the Utah desert is full of Jurassic-era raptors. So um, they're the bad ones from the first Jurassic Park, I believe, that so upset Jeff Goldblum. Uh, the desert there is full of those. So you have the fun and slightly strange image of, um, as you say, a, a suited and booted Martian astronaut wandering around in a simulated exercise and accidentally digging up a dinosaur. I like to think that the sort of, you know, mission control will come over and sort of go, so, 
Yeah, just could you ignore that dinosaur? That's not helpful to the mission. If you maybe just go six feet the other way and try and dig up a rock, because right. they have those on Mars, over. Um, yeah. The, so the nature it, of simulation, um, It's very, very interesting what they're doing there, though. Yeah. yeah it's interesting. Um, you, at some point, you ask one of the people there uh, that in some ways this is a sociological experiment as well, right? And, yeah, and yeah. it's interesting. Then, then, then she says the types of people that they they want to recruit. Yeah, well, when you consider uh, that the moon is forty eight hours away, so you can fly from Cape Canaveral or wherever you're flying from, and you could get to the moon in forty eight hours. Whereas Mars is six to eight months away, traveling directly away from the Earth. You know traveling into the abyss for six to eight months, and then you would land there, and depending on the different orbits of Earth and Mars, you would either be there for a month, which is a kind of waste of time when you consider you spent so long getting there and then you're there for a month, and scientifically that's not very helpful. Or you're there for about 18 months, um, and then it's six to eight months back. And obviously if you're looking to spend longer there, that's a different thing. But um, your round trip, not counting time, on the planet uh, is over a year. It's just traveling. And so the people who would take part in such a trip, um, they're very different from the Apollo astronauts. The Apollo astronauts were ex-forces. You know, they were problem solvers. There's the amazing footage of Neil Armstrong landing, you know, the, the lunar lander with alarms going off, and he had about, you know, six seconds to, to do things. And he was an ex, you know, uh, Bell X-1 fighter pilot. His reactions were absolutely prime. He was good in a crisis, whereas actually the people that um, may go to Mars almost need to be the opposite. They need to be able to withstand constant low-level white noise panic. You know, they... I. I when I was writing it, I was thinking these people almost, they need to have no imagination. If you have too much imagination and you're going to this, you know, going through this kind of, to me, terrifying situation of traveling away from the Earth for six to eight months, and that's just one way, and then you land on this terribly hostile planet without air and various things, you kind of can't have too much imagination, surely, in that situation. You just need to kind of accept moment by moment, day by day, and not freak out. However, the people who go to um, the Mars Desert Research Station down in Utah, uh, I mean, bear in mind, they're in Utah. They don't, you know, if they take their helmets off, they can breathe air. They're 15 miles away from the nearest In-N-Out burger, let's say. You know, they're not actually that far away from things. By Earth standards, they're actually in the middle of everything. There are far... Um, further flung places but people go kind of crazy after two weeks you know they've had a situation where um, somebody has driven one of the lander rovers if you like a dune buggy in full sim kit has driven it out i imagine you know over the fence out like they're uh, driving off a movie lot and kind of has gone to just sort of like they've just had enough you know They've just driven down the road and, you know, probably caused a tailback of cars because those things aren't terribly quick. It just is something out of a, out of a sci-fi film. It's, it's hilarious. But at the same time, how terrible for that person to think that they are going to 
learn something about themselves and they're all going to go to Mars and then they just have gone utterly bonkers within two weeks. Um, so they get all sorts of people going there. And I should say that that example is a really um, very, very unusual thing. Most of the people who go there are very professional and kind of doing genuinely useful scientific uh, work, but yeah, there's a lot of uh, work that goes on with the people on themselves. You know, can they withstand sensory deprivation? Basically, can they go through the kind of mission that they've set themselves to go out and um, behave as if they're already um, on Mars? Uh, it's an interesting one, and it's uh, you know, it was really eye-opening to go there. Fascinating. Uh, we have just about reached the end of our time. Uh, you'll have to read about many of the other places that Dan Richards uh, visits in the book. The book is Outpost, A Journey to the Wild Ends of the Earth. We just have about uh, a minute, uh, two minutes left, Dan Richards. I want to uh, just get your takeaway at the end of this adventure, uh, these adventures, and uh, and then coming back home. What um, what What is the biggest thing you've learned? Um, one of the things I learned was how connected the Earth is. You know, um, people, we live in an amazing time of connections, uh, and you're never really that far away from people, um, however far you go, which is kind of a comfort, but at the same time, it's, um, it was a surprise to me. When I was in Utah, Katie Cornelli, um, somebody I went to university with, you know, she's now curator and collections manager at the Prehistoric Museum in Price. And so she was able to give me a lift to the Mars base, for example. I had no idea about that, but the amazing, you know, my phone, I could phone someone in Shanghai who I went to university with, and they say, oh, we know Katie, and she could sort me out a lift. Um, and that kept happening over and over again. So however far you try and run away uh, from things, you know, if you turn your phone on, you're right back in the game. So the biggest thing, if I think anybody wants to get away and have an outpost, you can do that in your own home if you just turn your cell phone off um, and log off the Internet. Um, equally, if you do go as far as you can go and you get this, um, you know, image of the world as it's seen from the faraway places, this idea of the overview effect, that's fundamentally a worthwhile and good thing to do. So I think everyone should do a bit more of that. So it's a bit swings and roundabouts. It's, uh, you know... It's you can take your choice. Well, a good place to end the conversation. Um, Outpost, a journey to the wild ends of the earth. Dan Richards is the author. You can find him on Twitter at Dan underscore Zepp. And you can find us on Twitter at UPR Access. And uh, we have appreciated the conversation. Dan Richards, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Take care. Take care. And thanks for listening to Access Utah.